Hello, Podicumans, and welcome to the Podicesis Podcast, a podcast about what Christians believe and why it matters. I'm Brett Maddox, and once again, we're joined by your very best friends and the boys of summer, Jim Morrow and Alan Kaysen. How you guys doing? What's up? <laughs> What's going? I think I've, I think I, I broke Jim. I don't know what just happened. I'm going to tell you if I well one I sound amazing today. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> if I didn't sound like this today, uh-huh. I would have broken out in Don Henley's Boys of Summer. Yeah, that's what that I was is one of for. that is one of the classic iconic songs. It's almost a perfect song. It is. It really is. I think yeah. Rick Beato says it's a perfect song. So praise God. I think we're going to have a fantastic episode. We've got great content. Um, I sound like this and may not be able to talk by the end. Yeah. Alan is in his own special space for reasons that I can't disclose. (laughs) Because there are some things, look, here's here's what you need to know. This is just a life tip, guys. There are some things that are not yours to tell. That's true. That's true. Well, I mean, you know, listen, listen, I've been having some back, back pain. And I may have taken a muscle relaxer before we started this episode. So, <laughs> which is what Martin Luther did before he wrote his ninety-five theses. It was, <laughs> yeah. So this is this is what the the Cardinals did before the drafting of Vatican II. Uh, this is what John Wesley did before he wrote his journal. Actually, he didn't do it day by day. It was all in one sitting because it was all muscle relaxer. This is how they cast lots, right? This is this, yes, is, this is it. Is, that's right. This yes. is okay. And by all the right. way, so, none of what I just said is true. Please don't <laughs> cite us in your thesis or your high school paper. Jim, Jim got that off of Wikipedia. He did. I got, he I got that did. off of Wrongopedia. <laughs> oh. Actually, actually, we'll know in about five to ten minutes uh, kind of what maybe even the Holy Spirit looks like when those muscle relaxers <laughs> kick in really well. Yeah. Yeah. When, uh, when Alan is I, just looking into space and not I responding. Started, I started to feel a little tingly, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> a little yeah, tingly. that's right. Is but this the heart strangely that, warmed? I mean, we are yes. a day out. Yeah, okay. Yes. Aldersgate Day was the day before our recording. We yep. praise God for that. Um, real quick on on that, uh, that's a day that has become that it is an iconic day in Methodism, and it it has many facets for how people enjoy and not interpret it but celebrate it. Right. I wonder, I wonder if anybody in our listening audience, um commemorated that day i'd love to hear i'd love to hear about how you did that yeah uh, that'd be how the awesome. spirit of god yeah. showed up for you yeah um and so that'd be fantastic so today as we're talking brett will introduce a little bit of the topic i think it's uh we're going to be talking a little history yeah uh, this is how history theology and actual day-to-day ministry practice yeah. come together i believe yeah um because the topic we're talking about theologically informed Mm-hmm. historical record, but also is very pertinent for our how we approach ministry and life as Christians today. I would like to think that this episode would be um, what it would be like if Dan Carlin of Hardcore History became oh, a gosh. church historian. Um, and so, l- l- buckle up for a four-and-a-half-hour episode. On right, so, <laughs> so, Brett's having delusions of grandeur here. <laughs> Well, we do release episodes at the same rate as Dan Carlin. <laughs> that's a, that's, like that's just some just like once, podcast baseball right a, there. Once a fort year, every fort, leap year, every leap year. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so we're going to do this. This is going to be so. Our last episode was kind of a short episode, was under thirty minutes, and so this one will be under thirty minutes, I think. And um, the, don't don't tell people things like that. 
Okay. I'll <laughs> All right. We're going to edit that out. So, Tell us what um, we're doing. Okay. So what we're doing is um, we, we were looking at Wesley's view of the image of God from the yes. uh, Faith Once Delivered document from the John Wesley Institute, right? And so we went through the natural image, uh, the political image, the moral image. And if you want to know more about that, listen to our last episode. Um, but then there's a piece at the end of this, at the end of this section in the TFOD that brings up. Um, it was it's almost like an example. It's almost like, a, a, okay, if you know Wesley's view of the image of God, there's this political image, this moral image, this natural image. And so he gives this real world almost example, or this this document does, of how this plays out, looking at a popular treatise that Wesley put out um, called Thoughts Upon Slavery. And so this got me to thinking, um, one of the things I love about history, I love the, the weeds of history, I love the details, I love the stories, the individual kind of stories of history, but I also... I love grand swaths of history story. You know, the, the swaths? almost swaths. 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 He's a swath. He's a swath. Bug. He's a swath bug. Okay, I was just making sure <laughs> I was the muscle bug. relaxers. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I love seeing um like a grand sweep because you can start seeing connections, right? You can see themes. You can see things kind of pop out that maybe you'll miss when you're in the deep, the, the weeds, when you're in the mm-hmm. details. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, one of the one of the things, uh, one of my favorite history books uh, was written by a, a church historian named Mark Knoll, and he's got this book called Turning Points. And it's decisive moments in uh, church history or history of the church, history of Christianity. And uh, in that book, he talk, he takes 13, within the last 2,000 years, 13 kind of major milestones, turning points um, within the, uh, the, the life of the, the, fall of, the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the council of Nicaea in 325, um, and, 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 and so on and so forth. Two turning points he, he talks about in that book, uh, their chapters that are back to back, is the Wesleyan, uh, the Wesleys, the Wesleys conversion and the Wesleyan revival in England and then uh, uh, subsequently um, in, in America. And then you have the next chapter will be the French Revolution. And these these things happen right around the same time. The Wesleyan revival happens in the mid to late 1700s. The uh, French Revolution starts in 1791, 1792, something like, in anyway, the late 1700s. And what you see is you actually see two revolutions taking place, mm-hmm. one in England and one in France. There really are two revolutions taking place that have completely different outcomes. Uh, their, 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 their tools of warfare are completely different. And the outcomes are completely different. And so the question I, I have, and it's not unique to me, it's actually one that I, I took from uh, Mark Knoll and his book, is um, what is it that makes these two things in two countries that are only separated by an English channel, right? They're only separated mm-hmm. by a little body of water, who are going through revolutionary um, times – um, what makes them so different? Now, mm-hmm. let me let me just say this: England was going also through a war during this time um, in the colonies in in the United States. So, but even with that happening in the colonies, 
um, there was movements of a great awakening taking place as well. And so that does play into this. But when you look at what's happening in France during this time, it's a very different thing. So um, what I want to do first is kind of let's look at this paragraph that the TFOD, uh mentions about thoughts upon slavery the, and the mm-hmm. image of God. Mm-hmm. And then let's just talk about a little bit of you know, very generally, almost absurdly generally, the kind of historical things happening in Europe at that time. Okay. All right. This is paragraph 76 in the TFOD. Um, While the Wesley brothers may have stressed God's moral image more than other dimensions, a full assessment of their arguments on public issues, especially slavery, shows that they viewed all aspects of the image of God as intricately related. This is most clearly expressed in Wesley's widely distributed anti-slavery tract, Thoughts Upon Slavery in which Wesley challenged all those who were involved in the 18th century slave trade, uh, parentheses, a corruption of the political dimension of God's image, to dissent from the practice without delay on account of the principle of mercy, justice, and truth, God's moral image, because enslaved Africans are kin to Europeans just as Cain and Abel were kin, God's natural image. Mm. Yeah. And so what you have from Wesley is this idea that um, those in Africa, those in Europe, those that were all kin to each other. And because of that, there's all these things that are driving this, um, this, I, this, there's all these, God, God is driving his church to end a, a practice, the, 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 the Atlantic slave trade, um, to end this practice, um, because it is contrary to God's will, it's contrary to God's goodness, his mercy, his justice, his truth. And um, so Wesley and his f- people, the, the, the Methodists, were influential in the ending of the slave trade in, in Europe, in, Engl- in England. And then uh, later on, we will see how the church, really the abolitionist movement led by the church in the Americas, was influential in ending slavery a little bit later here. So um, uh, just some interesting – I want to introduce two figures to you guys. Uh, One is um, a slave trader. He was actually a captain of a slave trade ship um, and made uh, quite a bit of money doing that. Um, And then Jesus got a hold of him in a radical way, and he became an Anglican priest. Um, and was uh, influ- he was influenced by Wesley. I think he was friends with Wesley. Um, I don't think he was a Methodist himself, but um, he was definitely influenced by the Methodist. He was an Anglican priest, an evangelical Angl- Anglican priest, and a hymn writer, and a guy named John Newton, who, mm-hmm. who penned probably the most famous... Um, the John three sixteen of all hymns, uh, Amazing oh, Grace. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Non Christians know Amazing Grace. Sing Amazing. You know that. That's yeah. that's what I'm saying. Is it's the, um, and so Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. Like if you read those words, understanding who John Newton was, you start. It, it really comes alive at that point. And so Newton becomes an abolitionist because of his religious convictions. There was another guy, <clears throat> a young guy. He was, uh, for all intents and purposes, he was like this kind of up-and-coming guy, good-looking guy. He was kind of a ladies' man, um, and he uh, went through... Uh, Are you talking about me again? Uh, <laughs> no. Oh. 
Okay. Definitely not you. Wow. Well, Most I mean, we don't, you don't, you don't, you don't have to be so intense about it. <laughs> so there's this guy. He's a young, like one of those up and coming. Simple guys. no would suffice, but okay. A simple no, but you know, well, sometimes no. you need clarity um, in how the no works. Accountability. Accountability. Yeah, we'll go with it. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Go for it. So anyway, so there's this guy. He's an up and comer, and he's uh, he he's he's connected. So he 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 becomes a member of parliament. And um, uh, really, at first, he becomes a member of parliament because it seems to be kind of – I think his dream was to be like prime minister. And so to kind of get to that that place. Um, But – uh, sometime just after college, I think – my my recollection could be wrong. It was around his college times. He, um, he, he, He goes on a trip with his aunt kind of through Europe. Well, his aunt was an evangelical Methodist. She was a Methodist. And she influences him, and the people that she's around influences him. Well, lo and behold, what happens is Jesus gets a hold of him, and he just completely gives his life over to Christ. He, he, he stops a lot of the, kind of the partying and the stuff he had been doing, turns his life over to the Lord, and uses his uh, status within parliament to do good works for the kingdom of God. He himself um, ne- wasn't necessarily part of the Methodist movement, but he was friends with John Wesley. And in fact, six days before John Wesley would die in 1791, um, six days before he died, he penned a letter to William Wilberforce, um, um, tell, uh, kind of entreating him or, 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 or uh, uh, encouraging exhorting. him, yeah. exhorting him to continue his fight against the North Atlantic uh, slave trade um, and the English uh, slave trade that was going on. Um, y'all, William Wilberforce spent his entire life in Parliament, his entire life fighting against slavery, against the slave trade, and would, um, towards the end of his life, see that, uh, that trade, that, that, that uh, work be, come to its fruition, um, where uh, the, the slave trade in, the English, in England would be, um, would be eradicated through an act of parliament. Y'all, it was slow. I'm sure people woke up all the time going, you know, when will this end? Like, you know, when you're so passionate about doing this type of work. I'm sure there were days when it's like, will this ever end? When will this ever end? But you see this slow progress through uh, the, the, the slow hand of like, the work of God changing a, a culture, changing a people, changing a society um, in, in such a powerful way. About a hundred years later uh, or so, you would start seeing the church in, the America, in America through abolitionist movement also pushing and, and, and succeeding in um, helping um, the end uh, slavery in, um, in America. Yeah, there was a civil war, um, but the abolitionist movement was a huge movement, and the church uh, and, and Methodist Wesleyans were a big part of this. The holiness movement during that time were a big part of this, of ending slavery in the United States as well. So that's a revolution. Uh, that, that's a definition of a revolution, a cultural mm. change. Um, that, that's a revolutionary thing that takes place in England. And why? I would submit to you that if the Wesleyan revival had not taken place in the 1700s, yes, England probably at some point would have ended the slave trade, I would imagine. But I think for such a time, for such a time as that is why, one of the reasons why the Wesleyan, Wesleyan revival 
was allowed to um, to catch fire um, was to have a cultural shift, a cultural change, um, a revolution, if you will, in England. You, you, uh, now, before I get to the French thing, let me just pause right here because I've been talking a lot. Am I off base on this? You think? I mean, there's there's obvious correlation. The, yeah, um, and that's right. Correlation doesn't add, you know equal causation. No, 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 no. no, 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 no. I'm saying there's obvious yeah. correlation there. Um, that's what happens when the power of God is made manifest in people. Yeah. Um, the power of God brings freedom. Mm-hmm. The power of God brings transformation. Yeah. Um, I was talking to, uh, listening to a recent podcast. Let me plug a, a fellow great podcaster. This is the Art of Holiness mm-hmm. podcast with Carolyn Moore and Pierce Drake. Just recently, they had uh, published a pre-recorded interview with Pete Gregg, who is one of our favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Check him out. And he talks about the paradigm of presence as the true power of affecting social justice in the world around us. Wow. Um, is we carry the presence of God as we are in the presence of God and we carry the presence of God into the world. The presence of God is the power to affect change and transformation. This is what Brett says all the time when he repeats his church's motto, lift high the name of Jesus. Right. Um, and so there's, it's a, it's a really deeply theologically uh, involved model of social justice, which I think this, mm-hmm. uh, this, this, uh, history of, of the Wesleyan involvement in slave trade, uh, ab- abolishing the slave trade is an emblem of, an example mm-hmm. of, um, is is being so transformed by the presence of God and carrying that out that you are then, there. it's natural mm-hmm. to then seek the good mm-hmm. um, for people. And there are different ways, and we can see this now, and, and, and I have... Just, just to pay have people pay attention. There are different ways that people are seeking uh, to affect justice in the world around us, mm-hmm. and there are even differences within the Methodist family mm-hmm. about how that about that how that works. And I would just draw your attention to that. And just one of the things that's important is to dig down in details, yes. a little bit instead yes. of uh, large swaths of example. Dig down deep into this because. Methodists were involved in the freedom of people. Yes. And we were and, and were deep drivers in it. Um you also you also have like there's a Methodist compulsion because of God's holiness to seek the freedom and wholeness of others. But also look at the deep theological underpinnings here. This is why it's important to think theologically. Right. Um in in the we're just you know, slavery is a huge topic. But right now we're 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 just trying to to define this in that 18th century North Atlantic slave trade. Right. Um, that is a perversion, a sinful perversion of God's call to exercise dominion and stewardship over the world. Right. And so to think deeply theologically about what it means uh, to one be a person in the image of God and that others are created in the image of God, no matter whether we're not even talking about fallenness at this point. Right. We're just talking about the dignity and beauty of what it means to be a human being. Right. And so to think theologically about that, you recognize that, yeah, that is, no matter how people are trying to support slave trade with, you know, Bible verses. Right. Um, 
it is theologically an error and therefore an error in practice. And so to think deeply theologically about things actually helps give people a powerful leg to stand on to affect goodness in the world. Now, one more point I'll make on this before we move, let somebody else talk. I don't even know if y'all can hear me or if yeah, my you're words good, are coming yeah, out of my great. throat. I mean, you got James L. Gerald, Gerald, what Gerald Jones. Jones. I'm Darth Vader. I'm Darth Vader. Yes, you got those if vibes. If you build it, on. they will come. Yes. Yeah. Um, all right, so there's a lot of talk about what it means to think biblically. Um, and I guess we've always had this, but but you know, there's a lot of talk about that right now. Um, and it's absolutely true that that people use the fact that the word slave and some slavery conversation is used in the Bible. People did use that as an excuse uh, for their practice of slavery. Um, but it's it's wrong, not just because we say we are interpreting the Bible differently than we did back then. Mm-hmm. Um, the entire trajectory of Scripture is about freedom and abolition of slavery, Amen. for Amen. example. yeah, From Amen. the earliest Hebrew texts in the Old Testament, yeah. while yes, they did talk about how to treat slaves, um, the, the beginning of the trajectory there was a complete turn from pure dominion over others and removing their dignity through slavery. Right. You can talk later about the different kinds of slavery that have existed, but the trajectory of the scriptural witness all the way through the New Testament is a trajectory of freedom for peoples, mm-hmm. even down into Philemon, mm-hmm. which is one of the short books of the New Testament, which is very obviously um, a non, an anti-slavery text. Mm-hmm. Um, so the caution that I would bring to people is just because a word is brought up or there's an instance where it seems to not be a, you know, something in the Bible doesn't seem to be completely done away with or changed. Mm -hmm. What you need to do is be deeply biblically literate Mm -hmm. and watch trajectories. For example, um, the trajectories of how women serve God, uh, through the course of scripture is always leaning into um, the women exercising powerfully the gifts of God for the ministry of God's people. Mm-hmm. No matter how many texts there are that are breaking out of mm-hmm. the male-dominated society, the trajectory of Scripture is about that. The same is true for slavery. Mm-hmm. Now, other things, the trajectory is very much towards no. Mm-hmm. Human sexuality and marriage, mm-hmm. for example, uh, the trajectory is very much in a different direction. Mm-hmm. So why why am I saying this? Uh, because this is a great exercise in, if we think theologically and we look historically and we allow ourselves to be steeped in Scripture, we will find ourselves in a very deeply powerful place living in the presence of God that leads us out to do good in the world. And there's a lot of chatter around us about what that means. Um, but if we can dive down into the texts sit in the presence of God, think deeply about who God is and who people are, Right. then we're going to find ourselves with power and presence in this world to do great good. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I if, think, that made um, se- if that made sense, somebody give me a dollar bill. All right, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Well, I think um, just in a couple of examples, slavery, um, all the, the, the several examples that Jim mentioned, <clears throat> it just goes to show you how fallen and broken the image of God is yes. in, in, in our world. 
but then how a proper view and understanding of the image of God can help us with the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, um, lifting up uh, the name of Jesus, how it, how that, how a proper view of the image of God can help restore right. um, mm-hmm. the image of God in the world. Um, right. Even if it's in just our own little pockets, That's right. um, you know, in our, in our communities, in our States, in our country, just in our little pockets that we can control. Um, and uh, so just, just, this is why the image of God matters. Um, you know, well, absolutely. And I mean, I know you guys have justfully made fun of me and my love for Thomas Oden, but, um, no, I love <laughs> Thomas Oden so much. I know you do, but I yeah. do like to make fun. Any excuse to make fun of you, I'm going to take fair, it. Fair, yes, fair enough. Yes. But one of the things that I appreciate about his approach to, to theology, um, is not only the classical sense in which he's looking at theology and whatnot, it's just, it reminds us of the importance of systematics, um, when we do theologic, when we do theology, um, I know biblical theologians who will say of systematic theologians, "Oh, y'all are just more, you know, picking and choosing verses and and whatnot." A good systematic theology is not a, a someone who goes through and does eisegesis and just picks a verse to fit some sort of idea. A good systematic the, uh, theologian or theology looks at the kind of the overview of Scripture and follows the threads, right? It follows the threads from Genesis to Revelation and how God is revealing not only himself, but his action and what he is calling his people to do. And um, so I think, I mean, as what Jim is saying, that's one of the ways when you do theology on these things, yeah, you can see a verse over here that talks about, you know, how to treat slaves or how women are not permitted to, you know, whatever, or this or that or whatever. But then you got to take a step back and see, okay, what, is that an exception or is that a, or is there a grander theme, a grander sweep that is uh, uh, threading through 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 the scriptural text, um, I I love you know one of the the, the phrases I, I I repeat all the time is from Doctor uh, Ben Witherington. I don't think it's unique to him, but he's the one that taught it to us at at a seminary. Was a text without a context is a pretext for whatever we want it to be. Right? Like if we if we take text out of its context, then it it becomes it becomes it it becomes what we want it to be yeah. self defining. And so, context, by the way, is not just biblical context. Is not just what comes before it and comes after it. Those are important pieces. Those are right. But this is why the study of you know history and the study of cultural settings and the study of um, backgrounds and and you know what is you know what is being said and and and, and all of this stuff. That's why that study is so important because it's part of the context. Mm-hmm. These these texts, these biblical, the, the the authority, the word of God wasn't written in a vacuum, and so um, these are important important pieces in doing in doing good theology on this, and, and it matters because lives matter, right? Like people yeah. matter, lives matter, all this matters, and we want to honor God. Remember, three years ago, can you guys believe that? By the way, in about two weeks, it'll be three years that the Podcasts podcast has been together. Oh, it's our hat uh, trick. It's a hat trick. <laughs> but three years ago, we came on this podcast and we said, what is the chief end of humanity? The chief end of humanity is to uh, worship, to glorify God and to and enjoy, enjoy him forever. forever. So how do we do that? 
right? Like how do we carry that out in all aspects of our lives? Yeah. So. We're talking about, uh, I'm going to do a quick plug and this isn't very organized, but um, there's a book that I'm looking forward to reading, which we're talking about in our podcast. We talk about what Christians believe and why it matters, why it matters right. which is thinking about God theologically and living it in our lives and ministry. So we hold up the systematic theology. We love Thomas Oden, but um, better than Grudem for sure. <laughs> but um, yeah. Beth Felker Jones is actually one of my, she's, she's just a great writer and, and uh, Wesleyan thinker in my mind. Um, yeah, she has a I new agree. edition coming out in July of her book, uh, Practicing Christian Doctrine, mm-hmm. an introduction to thinking and living theologically. And so you have this, uh, systematic understanding that we put flesh on and we kind of move through. Um, we live theology, we we learn theology, we pray theology, we receive theology, and we live theology. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that we focus on is it's not, you have to know so you can live, mm-hmm. but it's not a head exercise. Right. Um, I, I want to encourage somebody to pick up this book with me um, and love to talk with you about that. Um, practicing Christian doctrine, Beth Felker Jones, um, should be good. All right, she already got an edition out. You probably already read it, but this is an update. I'm going to put that in the show notes. Please do show notes. There it is. <laughs> All right, real quick. So, what was happening across the English Channel? So during this this time frame, well, y'all know the Cathedral of Notre Dame or Notre Dame mm-hmm. or whatever. I've however been you- there. You've been there, all right. Yeah. And now this fame, you know, infamously, uh, what five years ago or something like that, burned like with the spires fell and there, yeah. Did. So uh, kind of a landmark, beautiful uh, cathedral. Um, so uh, in seventeen in the late seventeen hundreds, one of the the cultural phenomenons that was taking place in France and throughout Europe was kind of an age of reason that was coming out, kind of scientific discoveries and in an enlightenment period. These are kind of the words you read about in world history, right? Um, I think the scientific method was kind of first proposed or being kind of set in in practice during this time. And you had a lot of the great political uh, thinkers and philosophers like um, I think like John Locke and those and those folks who influenced right the the uh, founding fathers of the of the United States and their political dimensions. So there were a lot of I will say great things coming out of this age of reason, this age of enlightenment. But what you also had was a rise in humanistic thought, right? You had a, a rise in um, this, um, is the word hedonism, right? This idea of, of, of there, there are no gods, honestly, that we, we can be a god unto ourselves. Now, during this time, France was heavily Catholic. I think it was actually an officially a Catholic um, a state. And, um, and it was also a monarchy. And, um, and it was uh, very uh, still kind of feudal in its uh, way of running and whatnot. And, um, and so uh, you had a lot of poverty. Um, you had a lot of, uh, I, I would imagine some, cr- you had a lot of crime. You had a lot of those type of issues. So you had a lot of things happening in France, just kind of boiling up you know, politically, philo- philosophically. You had all of this happening. Um, also, you know, uh, I, I, some other names that come out of this, uh, I think Descartes was around the 1700s. You had um, a Kant, it's kind of philo- philosophical just giants during this time. Um, 
in Notre Dame, in the Cathedral of Notre Dame, on the altar table there, um, and you can actually look this up on, in your Google machine. Um, you can see a there's they, they they placed a statue. Now, usually, if you go into a Catholic cathedral, uh, up at the altar hanging above it or somewhere near it will be a crucifix, right? The the cross with Jesus hanging on it will be a crucifix. Well, in Notre Dame, there was a statue put in the middle. Uh, was on that altar, and it was uh, to the goddess of reason, I think is what the plaque said, or what the, the name said, to the goddess of human reason. So humanism became a religion, became, the, the, became a way of, of looking at things. Human um, ingenuity, uh, we can get out of any problem, we can get out of any issue, well, what ends up happening, just really, just quickly, is uh, the monarchy is doing its thing. Uh, it, it is, it is. There's a, um, lots of hunger and poverty, and people start rising up and rioting, and mm. coming against the crown. And what you get out of that is what's called the Day of Terror, mm. and it's when the guillotine becomes a thing. Um, by the way, did y'all know the guillotine was still being used in the 1970s? Oh my. Isn't that crazy? Anyway. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that's when the guillotine. And so you you do. You have um, a storming of the palace. You have an overthrow of the monarchy. You have a day of terror, a bloody day. You have a revolution that takes place, a cultural revolution that takes place in France that would affect really Europe and, and even the United States. You would have that. That was marked by blood. So that was in the 1790s going into the early 1800s. If you go back into England, you have a revolution there taking place. A cult, like y'all, I mean, the, slave, the ending of the slave trade in England was a huge cultural revolution. Huge. That, that impacts economy. That impacted uh, politics. It impacted everything. And in France, you have a revolution taking place, and both of them are marked. It's interesting to me. In England, you had this revolution take place where uh, no blood is spilled. In, England, in France, you have this revolution take place where it is marked, it is known as a bloody revolution, a, a day, a time of terror itself, where monarchies die and where uh, humanism is lifted up. And so what is the difference? Well, the difference is the focus, right? You have a revival taking place in England a revival where God's spirit is moving in a powerful way and God's people are going and, and living for Jesus and humbling themselves and working, doing the slow work of changing the world in the name of Jesus, of lifting high the name of Jesus and trusting Jesus to do what Jesus does. And then in France, you have people lifting high the name of humanity, broken, sinful, marred humanity. And even though there could be some good things that come out of that, Again, political thoughts and whatnot. Ultimately, it ends in terror. Ultimately, it's marked by terror. Um, I, I think back to uh, if you continue into history and these type of think this type of thinking after World War One, hmm. the Great War. Um, when you hear historians talk about this, there's like everyone came together. I don't know what everyone came together means <laughs> when yeah. it comes to that, but. Everyone came together. The political leaders of the day came together and said, we can never let this happen again. We'll fi- we, we, have, we have the know-how. We have the ability to think our way out of all this. We should, this, this will be the, what's called the war to end all wars. We, we'll never have war again. 
Um, well, 30 years later, 25 mm-hmm. years later, um, in 1933, boom, World War II. So uh, re- human reason, I'm not, I'm not a guy who, who just knocks on human reasoning, but we have to put it in perspective that it ultimately comes from a broken, marred place, and it is not to be itself worshipped. And anytime that we do lift human reason to the level of God, it ends in blood and terror. Reason is a gift of God. Yes. Um, And recognizing it, it, losing the anthropological paradigm of the marred image of God and people. Yeah. You might not realize that a non-sanctified mind is lifting up something that is broken mm-hmm. um, and you'll see everything through the cracks of the mirror and it's only power tends towards destruction and death hmm. um, and that's that yes and so keeping the image of God in mind that in this example for you know just as a as an idea um, you can see, uh, a God-given, redeemed image where reason and power and God-focused direction are at work. Mm-hmm. And you can see what happens when we forget that humanity in and of itself is in need of a Savior. Amen. Yeah. Can, can, I, just, can I just make a push for that book, Turning Points? Um, um, well, let me take a look at the Amazon reviews before you push it. That's fine. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, I think it's in its third or fourth edition now. Um, it's one of the best kind of entry levels into church history. Church history, can, you can really get lost. And there are very specialized periods within those 2,000 years. Um, this book is such a great overview and it's such a great just kind of – you start seeing these themes popping up and you start seeing how – um, how the Wesleys really impacted where we are today, or um, why why the Council of Nicaea in three twenty five matters today? Like what 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 happened? Um, you know, why did the canon come about? Scripture come about? Why did the creeds and the and, and offices like bishops and deacons? Why did that come about? What was the historical thing that kind of pushed that together? You'll see that he he does a great job of succinctly putting this out there for us. So I highly recommend Turning Points mm-hmm. by Mark Knoll. Um, and it's easy, and, and any preachers or Sunday school teachers or small group leaders out there who are looking for something different to do for a group teaching, it's an awesome tool uh, to, to lead people in. And there's um, all kinds of um, stuff in there you can glean to help uh, draw people closer to Christ. Yeah, it like, sounds like a great read. Um, so, Well, that's what, I mean, that's, listen, so that right there, when we talk about Wesley's image, the idea of the image of God— you see that it's more than just a theoretical idea that, you know, kind of an ivory tower uh, seminary thing, right? Like it's supposed to matter in how we live our lives, how we treat others, and how we change the world for Jesus, how we lift high the name of Jesus and let Jesus do what Jesus does and see the world be changed and be agents in that change. Um, it, it matters It matters greatly, and... Um, I hope today hasn't been an exercise in futility where you're like, oh, history. And I know some people just don't like history, but I think it's because they don't see history mattering. And for me, history matters because it's like it tells our story. Like it just brings it all alive for us. Mm. So um, 
Um, if you have any questions or comments about any of this, um, you can let us know. Questions at podakesis.com. I haven't said that in a long time. You can also uh, hit us up on uh, social media at podakesis. You can even call us. Did you know we have a voicemail number? No one ever calls us. Aww. You didn't have to say that either. Well, you know, even the warranty, the car warranty people don't call our voicemail. Oh, yeah. You know what? That'd be funny if if uh, we made this, you know, we'd let people know we can play on air and all of a sudden it's like uh, Aflac or, or a car warranty or <laughs> yeah. something like that. And we're like, guys, we have a call. Please to the Firemen's Association. Yeah, guys, we have a call. Uh, we're going to play it for you. We're going to play it for you. Here we go. Uh, that voicemail number, 404-635-6679. Call us and let us know and, and give your thoughts on some of this stuff um, as well. Um, Alan, how you feeling over there, brother? Um, uh, I, I see four of you, uh, so <laughs> all's well. All's all, well. All is well. So when you look at me, you see my moral image, my political image, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. I see all the images. All, nice. He sees all the images. All nice. the images. <laughs> nice. <laughs> all right, all right, guys. Well, we're so glad that uh, you joined us for this time, and uh, we look forward to the next time we get to talk to you. I'm here on the Podacusis Podcast. Y'all have a great one. Mm-hmm.